Hi, everyone. Welcome to Drinking from the Firehose, a podcast for school leaders. I'm your host, Ellen Willoughby. Being a campus leader can feel like you're drinking from a fire hose with all the information, requests, tasks, and duties that are thrown your way on a daily basis. So how do you manage to do it all and help students grow? Well, that's what this podcast is all about. On today's podcast, our topic is culturally responsive schools. I'm thrilled to introduce our guest today. Hi, Mira. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Ellen. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Mara Doherty started college on the path to becoming a neuroscientist, but after volunteering with local high schoolers, many of whom hadn't received the academic preparation needed to fill out their college applications, much less succeed in higher education, she decided to pursue teaching. After working in local schools in Brooklyn, New York, and Austin, as a teacher and a principal, Mara is now the founding principal of Compass Rose Destiny, a new K-12 charter school that will be opening up in the Austin area in fall 2021. I have also had the great honor of working with Mira in the past, and I know she has relentless passion and desire to create culturally responsive schools for all children. So I want to start off by having you share your definition of a culturally responsive school and why that is important to you. Yeah, um, I... I think when we think about culturally responsive schools, we all go back to like the 90s definition, right? The Ladson Billings, like culturally responsive is you're taking account of what kids culture is and you're, you're incorporating that in some way into our pedagogy. I think now we've got to move on, right? That's great. I'm not against that definition, but I think it's time, right? That we, (laughs) that we elaborate on it a little bit. So when I think about culturally responsive schools and teaching The thing that I think about is creating a school where an adult or a kid could walk in the door and they, one, see themselves reflected in the school, right? In the culture of the school, in the text they read, in the curriculum they learn about, they see a reflection of themselves. In addition, they have a window into seeing into other people's cultures, right? They actually have the ability to explore other cultures, learn about them in a way that makes them a respectful but also active member in a diverse society. And then I think there's a step that we forget, which is creating a culture that's safe enough where kids can actually explore their own identity. And they can be in a space where others are exploring their identities at the same time. And it's, it's really safe and progressive to do that. So that's what I think about when we create, when we think about a culturally responsive school. Um, it's important to me. I mean, I think like, look at the world right now. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but I also think because our kids are really wonderful and the culture that they have, right, that they inherently come in with in school and the adults we have in our school all come in with these cultures that are really phenomenal, right? They're phenomenal humans. And we have said for so many years, we need you to put that aside and then walk into the building. And I think that makes kids and adults not engage in education the way they could. If we said, actually, let's bring that into the building, that is part of your education. Let's really affirm that. Let's affirm who you are, where you came from, and give that credit. We will actually see the face of education change. Yeah, and I think that one of the big pieces that you pointed out that is really so valuable is is we have for so long, like you said, shut it down, leave that at, at, you know, at the door. We all celebrate it on these particular times of the year based on a calendar somebody created and, and that's it. And what has been really the downfall of this? Like how has that shown up in our schools when we have ignored 
the different cultures and the different races and the diversity of our students and our teachers. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're totally right, Ellen. There's, <laughs> when we ignore this, what we're asking kids to do is to engage in learning that has nothing to do with them, right? Right. And I don't know how many trainings you've, I mean, I would say you've been to millions, right? You <laughs> at and I at have, least hundreds. <laughs> yeah, you and I have sat in hundreds Yes, together. we have together, absolutely. <laughs> and when it has nothing to do with you, there is no way you're engaging in it. Right. right. There's no way you're going to take something out of that. Maybe, maybe something minuscule, but it's not sticky, right? If right. you think of, again, I love incorporating neuroscience into what I do. It's It doesn't make memories sticky. It doesn't make information sticky. You're not able to retain that and actually apply it. And so when we wonder why is it so hard to get kids to apply the information they're learning in schools, well, the information that we're teaching in schools has nothing to do with them. And we're actually teaching them that they don't matter. You mm. don't matter, but this information does. And like, think about what that does to a kid every day when yeah. that's the message that's being sent and what that does to a community when that's the message a school is sending versus you matter the most. This community matters the most. Right. And I'm going to give you information to help you engage in this community, make this community flourish, continue to help this community flourish. It really changes the way kids take in information. Yeah, and it's understanding that everybody has a voice and everybody's voice is valid. Yes. And if we really think about the adults right now who are, are trying to really incorporate this, who have been raised to leave it at the door, it's really a, a really big shift. It really is. So I want to share just a, a little bit of data. So according to the National Association of Independent Schools, building culturally responsive schools requires tapping into our own cultural knowledge, experiences, and perspectives. It begins with us. It is highly emotional work that explores existing beliefs, values, opinions, and unconscious bias. Because cultural differences are assets, heads of schools, administrators, and teachers need to create safe spaces where these differences are valued and affirmed. So as shared in the quote, it begins with us. So as a campus principal, where do you start? I think um, for, for me, the biggest learning and where you start. I, so I would have said, right, like you start by making sure kids are reflected in schools and you buy these texts that that's great, right? All of that is good right. and, and that's important. Um, the biggest learning, I would say, over the course of the last three years and founding in different communities has been you need to start with the community you serve, right? Right. Um, a coworker of mine, Celeste, wrote down this quote she always says of nothing for us without us. She's always using this quote. And it, it just brings me back to the idea that the first thing you do when you're thinking of making a culturally responsive school and just a culturally affirming school, right? Because we don't necessarily need to respond. We should be proactive in this. Nice. Right? Culturally, say that one again. Uh, like a culturally affirming school. Culturally affirming school. And I don't know if that exists. I don't think I'm coining that term. Maybe that does. So hey, if someone maybe came it is. up with it, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> but when you're making a school like that and, and any community like that, the first thing you need to do is go and ask the community who they are, Right explore your community, know the history of your community, know what it is, what, what are the hopes and dreams of your community, who are the people in it, talk to everyone, right, go everywhere. When, once you've figured that out, then I think you have the internal work of figuring out, okay, great, this is who the community I'm serving is. Who am I 
in that community. And that's where it gets really sticky, mm-hmm. right? That's the work when it says that it's, um, you said, you know, it's super emotional. This is where people have to do the hard work of saying, who am I, right? For example, who am I as a um, as a white leader in this work, right? What, what role do I really play in this community? What role do I need to play? What roles can I not play? Um, once you figured that out, what you need to do as a school leader and how you integrate, how you make sure that culturally responsive frameworks are in your in your school, it all flows from there, right? Once you know what your community wants, who they truly are and who you are in that work, then I think everything comes pretty naturally. And I think that that is also not only for someone who's founding a school, but even current administrators. Yes. We have current administrators who, who may not be connected with the community that they serve. And they also, their community very likely has changed yes. dramatically over the last several years. So thinking about that, what does that look like? How does, how do you build that and under, and build that connection and understanding with the community. Yep. Before we get back to the show, we wanted to ask for your help in reaching campus and district leaders. If you like what you hear in this episode, hop on over to whatever platform you use and give us a rating and review. It really helps people find our podcast and lets us know what we're doing right and also what we can improve upon. And of course, don't forget to mention us to your colleagues. Thanks. Now let's get back to the show. I wish I had like a... uh cleaner way of doing this, right? Like here are the five steps. <laughs> yes, to, to, <laughs> but know. it's messy work. But it's super messy work. So for example, right now, um, you know, I'm I, like you said, I'm starting a school in Maynard. What this means is literally I talk to everybody I can in Maynard. So I start with folks. Um, I've got a woman on my board, Sheila Matthews, um, who she is a longtime resident of Maynard. She's a really active member in her church in Maynard. Um, she's really an advocate for early childhood education in Maynard. Right. She does not hold any political seats in Maynard, but she is like the unofficial mayor, right? right? No disrespect <laughs> to the mayor. We love him too. <laughs> um, and we've met with him as well. But right, you meet with everybody who is an active voice in Maynard, and then you meet with the folks that don't have an active voice, right? You sit down for coffee, you get on a Zoom call, you do whatever you need to do to talk to everybody in Maynard so that you can really say, or in your community, right? For me, it's Maynard. Right. Um, So you can really say like, okay, this is the diversity of opinions that I'm getting. These are the trends that I'm starting to hear. But I would say the first thing you do is a listening tour, right? As you're doing that, then you can do the things like looking up the, making sure you know the history, making sure you know the school information, right? The demographic data, et cetera. That's the easy part, though, and I think that's what school leaders naturally tend tend to do. Right, yeah, we, we, we go straight to the data first. Which is great. Yeah, but it's but, a great starting point. Yes. But the harder work and the most important work is kind of the boots on the ground work. Exactly, and then once you've talked to folks, get entrenched, right? So for me, I'm at the food pantry in um, Eternal Faith Baptist Church every other Saturday, right? Every other Sometimes I don't think they need me. I think they're just entertaining me there. But (laughs) (laughs) right, like I'm at the food pantry there. I'm going to go to the events that happen in Maynard, right? We're sitting down and having lunch with folks. You have to make sure that you're going to the events and you're taking part in the community celebrations, the community, right? Just taking part in the community that exists there so that you understand really what's what you have a pulse of the community. And and thinking about like current principles because that that's one of the 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 demographics or the or the or the one of the groups that we really want to also think about is the first thought I think of is like oh the time mm-hmm. but I also think about the return on that investment will pay off 
in spades. And I think there's a way to do both, right? So for example, and I hear this, right? There are nights where literally last night I was like, it is eight o'clock. I'm so so tired. (laughs) And I've got like another parent call to make, or I've got, you know, I've got to reach out to another family because, you know, because of this. The thing that I think, you know, yesterday I came back to this was for principals right now who are looking to do this work, right? And they're also in the work, right? right? Boots on the ground. They're doing all of, you know, they're reviewing data. They're, they're with kids every day. The best way to do this, I think, is to to mesh your opportunities, right? So if you have something, for example, you've got a student event coming up, mm-hmm. get parent opinion on it, right? Before, as you're planning, as you're trying to figure these things out, go ahead and get, and not just parent, get family, get community input. Ask somebody that you've never talked to about an event that you're doing. Ask somebody that you've never talked to but you know is important in the community about something that's coming up. Ask somebody what you should do about an issue that you've just been like mulling around in your head and is keeping you up at night. Go ahead and set up a quick 10 to 15 minute Zoom call with someone in your community that you can ask this question because the shocking part is they are way smarter than you. Right? Like they know. <laughs> they know. They, yes. I, I sat trying to figure out our social media campaign for weeks, right? Maybe we should do this. I didn't need to do that. The best thing I ever did was get on the phone with three different people from Maynard and mm. say like, hey, what is it you want to see for your kids? What do you want to see for this community? And they figured it out for me, right? You can actually decrease the workload right? if you recognize that the community you're serving actually has the answers. You just need to implement them. Got it. Yes. Yeah, so like they are your best ally. They are they are your information source of, of everything, because, again, we can spend all this time spinning our wheels as campus leaders trying to figure out what do we think they need. But why don't we just ask? Yeah. Why don't we ask? And why don't we give people the opportunity to do some of that work? Right? Yeah. A lot of times when we think of work that hasn't been done in a community, it, it's not that it hasn't been done because someone hasn't wanted to. They didn't have the platform. Right. And so, again, as a leader, you hold this card of privilege, and this is a great time to give it back to the community and say, hey, I've got the platform. This is work that you've really wanted to do. How would you do it? Great. Come and help me. Yeah. It's about handing over the mic. Right. Absolutely. I, I, yeah. I don't feel like as a leader, I'm doing a ton of leading right now. Right. Right. I do. A, I've got a wonderful advisory board. Again, I mentioned Sheila. I do what the community wants me to do. Right. right? I'm trying to give this platform to the folks that need it and do the work that the community is asking to be done. Awesome. So one of the things I want to want to ask is because this work is highly emotional, how do you handle any pushback or resistance from teachers and staff on your campus about this? I was nervous about this question, Ellen. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, I, th- this is one of the hardest parts of this work. Yeah. And as someone that's worked with you, you do this really beautifully oh, um, because you. I think there's an empathy with it, right? There's an empathy in terms of making sure, um, you know, like Ruth Bader Ginsburg said, bringing, bringing people to the table. And making sure that everyone has, you, you give people an opportunity to hear and listen and speak to, to what's going on. With that said, there is a real danger to that. And right. I think that there is, and then what I mean by that is, we are serving children. We are serving children and we are serving diverse communities. Right. And so 
when you get pushback, there's really two things to consider, right? One, is this someone that has shown evidence that they are willing to do the work in becoming a diverse, inclusive, you know, teacher, educator, leader, etc.? Do they, is there some, and not con, and I'm saying concrete evidence, right? Right, yes. Not good intentions. Because we, I think, a lot of times say good intentions are enough. And that actually isn't the case, at least in my opinion. I would say we, we have gone past the, the time for intentions. We need people in this work who are willing to be actively anti racist, who are willing to be actively inclusive, who are willing to have their hearts and minds changed by their children and community. And if there's evidence that even if they're pushing back, that they've done some of that work and that we can continue to build on it, great, let's have a spot at the table. And I think you deal with that pushback really by exploring who they are and where that pushback comes from, right? Like, that's okay. Let's talk about it. Let's figure out where that's coming from. What is it bringing up for you? Let's continue to do that work on ourselves. But if there is an evidence of that, right, if there is evidence that um, this person isn't willing to do the work, then I think we really need to put, we need to be brave and put kids first, right? The work yeah. that we do is putting children first. Right. And for too long, we've said the good intentions of adults is enough. And I would say, and this might be a really unpopular belief, so I'm sorry if That's this okay. makes people angry. No, this is, this is part of the work. But we've got, we've got to stop that. Right, we've got to say our children and their future comes first, and right. and we've got it. We, we need to have adults on board who are willing to say the same. Yeah, like the productive struggle is mm. allowed. So yes. if you're like, like this is hard, but I'm trying. Yes, and I'm putting forth the work, and I know that I have a belief that is is anti-racist, but you know we don't fix racism overnight. Yes. we don't fix our own conditioning overnight. So like having that struggle is the important piece. Absolutely. And and when we look at, and I love how you mentioned that kind of making that like, oh, you know, I think I might believe that way, but I'm not really willing to put in the work is just continuing to stamp that I'm not willing to change. Yes. And I'm not willing to explore. I'm not willing to feel uncomfortable um, this is where I stand, in a sense. And in some professions, it may be okay to say, that's okay, we can take as much time as we need. This is some immediate work that we need to right. do. Right. Kids deserve better right now. There Absolutely. are kids in classrooms that need to, that, that don't reflect them in the least bit, right? That, that have some racist practices. In education, we've really incorporated racist practices for hundreds of years. Right. And so we don't have the time to mess around. That productive struggle is great. That is a struggle I want to see people do. I actually think our best teachers are ones that are that are most inclusive, are actually the ones that really sit there and say like, man, I'm not sure if this thing that I'm doing is right. I, you know, and it makes me uncomfortable to talk about it. And that's actually great because then we can say, great, let's like get three different books. Let's talk to the community. Let's actually have an open discussion. Those are the folks that we want on our team. Right. But you're right. There's there's another group of folks that are like, this makes me uncomfortable. And like, I don't really want to engage. Yeah. And that's where we have to say, if, if that's not an option for our kids in the classroom, we don't give our kids that option. Right. Exactly. That, that can't be an option for the no, adults. No, not at all. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think too that like when we think about um, – 
our teachers who like the struggle is where the learning happens. Just like yeah. with our kids, we create productive struggle so that our, our kids can learn just like with adults. Like we need the productive struggle so that we can work through the really hard, messy. There's not a, a like there's there's some resources and things that you can use to help you navigate this. But there's nobody who's like hiding the, the answers, you know, underneath their chair. Absolutely. Like it's, it's about your own journey in exploring your beliefs and thoughts. Absolutely. So thinking about that, I would assume that you incorporate this um, this into your hiring practices. So how do, how do, what does that look like? Sure. So first I think you have to incorporate it into your current practices. Um, the work, I, I am really impressed with the work Compass Rose is doing right now. Our school's in San Antonio and our, and our team in our little team in Austin. <laughs> um, small, but mighty small and but powerful. Mighty, yes. <laughs> um, we've been doing this work and, and I'm, I'm just really proud of the organization, right? There are monthly to biweekly actual sit down PDs where folks are engaging in actively anti-racist work. So I think the first, the first layer is you have to be doing it within your organization before you think about hiring and doing this work okay. because you can't expect others to do it if you're not doing it yourselves. Oh, right. right. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that's the first step that we have to remember. And then when we think about doing this work within within hiring, there's two parts to it. One, you're looking for folks that are willing to engage with this work, mm -hmm. right? That they, that they at least have the ability to say, oh my gosh, maybe I, I've heard of this, um, but I've, I've never really engaged with it. This is so interesting. What can I read? What can I do? as I'm preparing to, to get into a job where this is part of the work that I do. So I think that's sort of the minimum that we want to see or people that have been actively engaging in this work for a long time. Right. Um, I, so I think that's part of the hiring practice. I think the other goes back to the community, right, in terms of we need to be hiring people from the communities we serve. Mm. We need to be hiring people that reflect the cultures and identities of the kids and the families that we serve. Absolutely. And not just like randomly hiring them. That needs to be something that we value within the hiring process. So we need to think about what are, what are the values that we're truly looking for? Is or are we reflecting the values and the needs of the community that before I spoke about, that before we've already gone and gotten and talked to our communities about, and they've said, here's what our dreams are, here's what our aspirations are, who, here's who we are. Are we then taking those values and reflecting those same values in our hiring? And I would say nine out of 10 times we are not, right? Nine out right. of 10 times yeah. we're creating a value proposition that exists because we think it's what's right for kids. Right. Yes, we need to incorporate some of that, but we need to make sure the value proposition that we that you know we are communicating and the values that we are looking for in our educators are the values that our community is asking for and very very usually this some of those values have to do with being from that community right yeah definitely because you you want like you said you want the representation of your community in your school and this is i i mean most of the schools that we're talking about right like if, if i think about the school that i'm founding we are, we are a, a school community, right? Meaning that we are part of the community we're in. We're not this separate entity of like, come to Maynard and then once you enter our, you know, enter our gates, this is a separate, this is a separate world. Right. right? We're a different universe. 
that's not what we want. I want people from the community coming to our school for events. I want our school to be part of the community. I want folks to, in 15 years, say, oh, you know, my, my grandbaby went there and they graduated and now they're in college. Oh, that school is where, you know, my niece teaches. This is where it needs to be an active, entrenched part of the community. And yeah. so to do that, how, how are we going to do that work if we, don't, if we don't have people from the community doing the work? That's a that's a great question. Right, and, like, I mean, it's like yeah, it just it, it just it doesn't make sense. Like if we're if we're hiring outside of people who don't know the community, who don't understand the needs of the community, who you know, even with best intentions, um, or if they're not willing to entrench themselves in the community, then sure. we're continuing to create a divide that we could actually prevent if we're being really uh, thoughtful in how we hire. Yeah. I mean, just the other day I was talking to somebody in, um, where was in Bastrop about science curriculum, right? And how they have really wanted um, ag science as their focus. And it was just fascinating to me because if I came in and had not talked to anyone from Bastrop, and let's say we, we came into Bastrop and started a school there, I would have just done a science program, right? Like, great, here is some STEM, let's start at you. What I realized is in talking to these families and kids in Bastrop, they knew so much more science than I knew about certain things, right? Their environmental science knowledge was off the charts. Right, because they live it every day. Oh, my gosh. There were things that I, I just were shocking for me to find out things that I genuinely was embarrassed of. Like I graduated from Columbia university with a degree in sciences and I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and, but the shocking part was like, Oh my gosh, you could build here in this community an incredible science program, but you're going to need to reframe the way you're thinking about it. Right. Mm-hmm. Like you're not where we're really going to need to think of what topics we introduce first, how we actually tie this to the work that kids and families are engaging in every day. And so when we think about like, oh, you know, I've been part of leadership teams, as I think you have as well, that say like, this is important, but like, that's not the focus. The focus isn't knowing your community. The focus is like the first we have to teach kids the curriculum. Well, that's an example of like, if you don't know your community, how are you teaching them well? Right. How, How do you know what they know? How do you know what their history is? Yeah, and you, and you don't <laughs> if you if you haven't asked, and so you're just kind of like plowing through, and you're you're putting what you think is best without looking at the huge vast amount of knowledge that you have available at your fingertips through totally. your community, right? And you're and you're actually kind of shooting yourself in the foot, yeah, because you could build on this knowledge that kids and families already have, right? You could use this knowledge as a platform. And I promise you, if you do that, you're going to get kids to move so much faster. You're going to see academic results you haven't seen before because you're actually saying what you already know is important. I'm validating that. And let's build from there versus you are a blank slate. You know nothing. Let me explain this all to you. And again, adults... We, that doesn't work for us. No one likes being told that. No, right? like, at all. But we think somehow that's going to work with kids. And again, I, I am I am at fault for doing this. I have done this. I, I have done this multiple times before, and I wish I could go back and change it. No, I hear you on that. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's one of those things where, you know, as we say, when when you know better, you do better. And when that realization comes up, yes, because there are tons of times, and I'm like, gosh. 
if I would have just done these these three these three things and and really entrenched myself in the community better, sure. then I would be able to um, really meet their needs. And I think one of the things that you said that really hit me was we look at kids as a blank slate, but they're not. Mm-mm. They come to us with so much and we have to understand what they're coming to us with so that we can, like you said, expand upon that and build upon that, nurture that and honor that. And nine out of 10 times when we talk to an educator about what kids are coming to us with, and I'm wondering folks who are listening, if they, if they have this immediate sort of like, you know, my antenna goes up. Right. We are typically talking about negative things. Yes, we are. We are typically talking about traumas that kids come to us with. We are typically talking about um, past experiences that aren't positive that they're coming to us with. That's like fascinating to me, right? Because... We so seldomly talk about the great things that kids are coming to us with, that communities have entrenched in them, that they are bringing to us, and they're, that they are being open enough to share with us. We, I can't. I would say that conversation is not the typical conversation that we that we're having as educators. Right. And if we can set aside, you know, I don't. Yes, this work is hard. Yes, this work is really meaty and it's tough to go through. But even just the basic things of setting aside, right, in, in my calendar right now, I have two 30-minute windows a week, right? Two days a week, 30 minutes of my time mm-hmm. that I have to be talking to someone from our community, right? It can be two 15-minute conversations. It can be one 30-minute conversation. It can be a socially distant coffee outside on someone's lawn. Whatever it is, two of those windows a week can fully change your perspective. It can give you answers to the things that you are doing today, to the things that you're sitting up in your office trying to figure out, like, what book are we reading in ELA next? Why can't, why are our scores on this science IA so low? Whatever it is, right? What, what do we make our next school event? You can get those answers in those conversations, right? You can do yeah. double duty and at the same time, your community is going to trust you and you're going to know something more about your community that is going to help you long term. We've been talking with Mira Doherty on the topic of culturally responsive schools. We will continue our conversation with Mira on the next episode, so please be sure to join us. If you like what you hear in this episode, hop on over to whatever platform you use and give us a rating and review. And of course, don't forget to mention this to your colleagues. Thanks 